What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Abner Maraz is a world champion boxer, Olympian, sports commentator, and most importantly, dad to two little girls. Beloved by Abuelas and hardcore fans alike, Abner is a pro at entertaining the world both in and out of the ring. On Blue Wire's new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Maraz, we'll hear from Abner, his family, fellow athletes, and other people who made him the boxer and the man he is today. They chat about topics like the state of boxing, Abner's journey from a kid on the streets to boxing champion, sports, music, culture, family life, and so much more. Listen to On the Hook with Abner Maris wherever you get your podcasts. Episodes in English are out on Tuesdays and episodes in Spanish are out on Wednesdays. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli. And we are going to be doing a mailbag today where we're answering a bunch of Twitter user questions that we've received on the NBA Math account over the last few days, as well as just kind of like briefly recapping some of the big takeaways from the 2020 NBA Finals. It's hard to believe that we've actually reached the point where we can refer to the 2019-20 season as this past season rather than the current one because it lasted approximately three and a half years. But that's where we are now. Um, Also, a shout out to betonline.ag and Indeed, our sponsors for this podcast, without whom it would not be possible. You'll be hearing from them a little bit later on. And before we move into the actual content, Dan, how's it going today? I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm I'm on adrenaline. I'm operating on no sleep. So this is going to be... My takes on this mailbag might get like too spicy because like my, my inhibitions are clearly lowered. I think it's better that way. I'm, uh, I'm shockingly refreshed for once. I, I don't know why because I haven't gotten a lot of sleep, but I'm like, I'm feeling alert, which is a rarity these days with a almost two-year-old child and a full-time job and all that jazz. Um, yeah, we'll call this um, Team Exhausted, except your team refreshed today. So you'll have to carry the podcast. I mean, but- don't I usually though? Come on. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so look, let, let's start with the finals. Well, uh, we kind of already like we talked about the series as if it was over on the last podcast we did together. So we don't really like have to go into the, the nitty gritty of that. But like, I'm just curious because there's been a lot of talk of it, and this doesn't really get it can get into the Jordan debate, I guess, a little bit. But where do you think this ranks among like LeBron's finals victories of the four? Yeah, I think it's a good question. It's one that LeBron himself doesn't particularly care for because he he has said that he values all the rings. But I, I do think it's a it's a good discussion point. Um, but I, I would have it, you know, granted every every title is special regardless of when it comes and for which team it comes. But I think it's fourth of them just because the the first one with Miami is special because. He, he finally proved that he could win that title, especially coming off the, the 2011 letdown against the Dallas Mavericks. The second one, he kind of cemented himself in that all-time pantheon, which you know we all assumed he was going to get to, but it was just that validation that, hey, like this guy deserves to be in that GOAT conversation, or at least the top five conversation at that time. The Cleveland title is probably the most special of all because of the 3-1 comeback against the greatest regular season team of all time and those 73-win Golden State Warriors, as well as 
bringing that first franchise title to his hometown team. I think that was probably the most emotionally important one. And this one, while it's fantastic that he was able to win with the Los Angeles Lakers, that he proved that he could continue to win more titles and potentially make a push for that Jordan tying sixth ring down the road, it feels like it just it doesn't quite have that same level of importance and cachet as the previous three, though that is not in any way a denigration of the most recent achievement. Yeah, I think I'm pretty much with you. I don't know how you beat the Cleveland title, whether you're looking at it, how does it help the GOAT debate, and then just like how much it meant. It feels like it covers both grounds there. I mean, coming back from 3-1, to one, first time that's ever happened in the finals, like you said, against the Warriors and all that. This one, for me, I think is the least significant as it pertains to the Michael Jordan debate, which I've mentioned to you before. Uh, because I don't, if you didn't have LeBron as your number one all time before, I don't know why this would change that unless you're ascribing a ton of value to him uh, winning this title amid there was the the Hong Kong stuff at the beginning of the season. And while LeBron definitely came off hypocritical at points, we are one, all hypocritical as I record this from a MacBook Pro um, that I'm on. But two, it was just like they were, I don't know if they were there yet or they were on their way to China is just all that was unfolding. And so you were thrown into that, just that gauntlet of like this political issue. Um, it was, it was a, a humanity issue as well that you probably weren't expecting, obviously. And then Kobe Bryant's death. Like, I do think that that's probably been, there's a point. I think it needs to be mentioned because it matters. Like LeBron was close with him. What Kobe and Gianna meant to that franchise. Um, just the, the suddenness of it all, knowing that how many other people died in that helicopter crash. That's something the entire league had to overcome, and so it definitely matters. You just don't want to make it exploitive, which I do feel like it. You know, when it, we were talking, it got there. It got there for sure. Yeah, like when we were talking about his MVP case, it was like you know, like we we can't do that. Like that almost is is insulting to like the um. I don't want to say the memory of Kobe Bryant, but like that just you know, don't dilute the meaning of it in any way. It would be I guess, but it was an obstacle. Like I think that's a hundred percent fair as one of my puppies whines in the background of this. They're not happy with the exploitive um, Kobe takes either. And then look, the the social justice stuff, the coronavirus pandemic, like these were unprecedented circumstances, whether you think they had an easier path to the title or not, like being sequestered away from your family for that long, it matters. Like it's, I know it was collectively bargained that he chose to do it, but that stuff still matters. So uh, you can argue that there's a certain difficulty level to that, but I don't know that it, it could have a case to, it's not going to beat out Cleveland for me. But when you look at the GOAT debate, it's like the only thing it really does for me is, is say, well, damn, him and Anthony Davis won it in their first year together, and LeBron is still LeBron. Like, we talk More about... Come. Yeah, and look, he's almost 36 now. Like, I don't know how much the break ends up helping him because he missed the playoffs last year, then had a break leading into the bubble this year. Uh, but, like, he's basically going to turn, because the season ended so late, he's going to turn 36, like, sooner. He's he's closer to 36. Like, it's two months away, his birthday, essentially. Less than two months away. So, he's still playing at this level, and while the West isn't going to get any easier, like, he, he has time to get a fifth one, I think more so than we ever thought he was going to get, and especially I thought he was going to get, because we had this discussion way back when he first signed with the Lakers, where I argued he might be done making finals appearances. How wrong I was about that. But now if it's all, all of a sudden, like, if you get to five, like, that's the game changer for me. It's not six, but at that point, it's like the ring count is disingenuous now, I believe. Like, once you get to five, it's just like, it's one away. And like, what, like, what is the, the it just feels like a negative, five feels so much more than four to me for some reason. I don't know why. And the last thing I'll say, since I'm rambling here, is that I think you could make an argument that maybe um, this title means more than number one or two if you wanted to because you could look at the first one 
people said he wasn't a winner, but looking at the team he was on, you could deem it inevitable. And they they beat OKC in five games that year, I think. Was it five? Um, I think it I was think five. So. And then um, the second one is like, you know, yes, they came back against the Spurs. You have that Ray Allen shot. Um, there's the what-if factors of what if he never hits that. You were on the verge of a three-peat, which would have put you in, in the dynastic talk. But, like, it was just, you know. Yeah, most Spades would have given him credit then. Fucking most Spades. That was like, oh, God. <laughs> I, I love that there was the bronze sucks, like, tag, like, at in there. And it wasn't even a watermark. It was just bold, outlined <laughs> meme font. Um, I got a kick out of that, but he was oh, sipping man. some bad opinion juice. And so I think you could make the case that this is better or more important if you want to say the numbers one or two, but I would definitely have the Cleveland title and his first title ahead of this. Um, and I might even lean towards number two. Um, at least is it, if, if you're looking at the Michael Jordan debate, I think all three of his previous titles mean more to it. But if you're looking at just overall meaning, I think there's a case for this one to be number, number two or number three. I, th- I think with regard to the Michael Jordan debate, the reason that this doesn't really hold much sway there or is going to change any opinions is because the the parameters of that debate feel so established at this point and they aren't changing. We know that Jordan's individual peak was a little bit higher than LeBron's. And his case rests on that perfection in the NBA Finals, the six for six, which is never going to change the ring count, the mythology, the the legend that is Michael Jordan. LeBron's case is about longevity. Like that's that's the primary selling point. And him continuing to demonstrate that that longevity is ongoing, it's not going to change any minds at this point. Like, I don't think, like, even if he wins the next two titles, I don't know that it's going to change anybody's minds. If he got to six, I don't know how it doesn't. I would say even five might get him the consensus. Maybe it's, like, the barely the consensus, but, like, I don't know how you deny it at that point. I just, I just think it's too entrenched. And, like, if we don't even consider Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the GOAT conversation, which really we should, uh, but his case is also based uh, more on longevity than anything else. The fact that he entered the league in the early 70s and dominated with the Milwaukee Bucks and continued to win titles with the Los Angeles Lakers in the 80s. Like, he was so good for so long, but that has, like, lost a little bit of resonance as we've moved further from his playing days. And, like, I, I feel like that's what would happen with LeBron if he makes the 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 biggest point in his favor at the tail end of his career because it's all about that longevity. Yeah, and I think what so there for Jordan, that level of mythology, even though you could say LeBron's game is maybe more myth um than actual human, the level of mythology of Michael Jordan is just never going to be matched by LeBron because of the way the league is covered. Like everything is just collated and calibrated. It's just it's it's exhaustive. At the same time, his might be a case that ages better after he leaves the league because people are going to look back at his resume and be like holy shit, look at what this guy did for 20 years or 20-something years, and maybe it's not something that he'll ever have in the moment, but like if we fast forward five to seven years after he retires, I, I think there's a chance he would um, have the, the consensus there. And I'm on record as saying so, I think LeBron would be my greatest of all time. Like I, I, There's definitely a debate for Jordan, but like now I'm if he's not there yet, I'm sort of resigned to just assuming that LeBron is going to get there. Um, but I do think... To your point, it's going to be tough for him to grab the consensus because there's there's one aspect, and it's not just rings. Even if he doesn't get six rings, but like that's at least like catchable. It's it's something tangible he can catch. The inevitability 
of Michael Jordan, the mythology of Michael Jordan, it's something that he's never going to match. And I think that has more to do with the timing and the difference in eras than it actually does of the two players. Right. It's the points that are made in Jordan's favor. Like if we go back to the Maurice Spates meme that he posted, it's like, oh, it took him 10 tries to get that fourth. Oh, did he? That's how confident he felt about that take. I heard he like made his account private or something too. But anyway, um, you know, the, the fact that he was confident enough to post that, oh, it took 10 tries for him to win his fourth ring. Like that's not going to go away. Those six losses in the finals, even if they were against largely juggernaut teams, it's not going to go away. And it's amazing, like, because we're so far removed from Jordan's prime already, it's like when he, when, when LeBron passed the ball to Danny Green, who missed that game winning attempt and the criticism was, oh, like Jordan wouldn't have passed. And you see how many people are already forgetting, like, Wait, he did. And Steve <laughs> Kerr and John Paxson hit those big shots. Like that that is is so washed away already because of the mythology. Like that's why I just I don't know that anything he's going to do is is going to change minds because there's so much entrenchment already on that side. That's fair. I almost want him to get to 6 to see what what like I don't really I don't have really it's a 7. If he's if he was at seven and didn't like first of all if he gets to seven I don't even know but he has to win like three in the next five years or something that's just I mean look Kareem won a title Ronnie at forty is, Ronnie is going to carry him in his final year in the league uh, and look Kareem won a title when he was forty I believe so there's that to consider as well but uh, if he did get to six I'm not like rooting for him necessarily to get to six I just I I want good basketball and then I'll enjoy whatever happens after the fact but if he gets to six I would be interested to see where that debate ends up because I feel like that's the only one now you're on even ground with the rings. What do you focus on for Jordan? Aside from what you just said, there's going to be that perception of, oh, he wouldn't have passed, and then there's the perfect finals record, and both those things are just, like, so flimsy. And the ring count itself is so flimsy, but, like, if you tied the ring count, the argument to make for Jordan, I feel like, gets exponentially harder to me. Yeah. To be honest, I'm just, like, kind of exhausted by the conversation in general. Like, ultimately, they're both incredible basketball players, and it's not really, like, that relevant. The fact that the fact of the matter is, like, they're in the top tier together. And if you want to throw Kareem in there, if you want to throw like Will Chamberlain in there, like go ahead, but they're in there. And that's the most important part. And I say that, and I know full well, this will not be the last podcast episode that we discuss LeBron and Jordan in the same conversation. I want to go on record because I love this debate. Like I get the fatigue from it, but like, I do feel like we have a tendency to shy away from like topics that are probably overcovered or exploited, like by the, you know, if, if it's on, if it's on Turner or Bleacher Report or ESPN too much, like people, and I, I totally get the fatigue, but like, you know what? I'm not going to, sh- I love talking about Giannis's free agency in future. I should, like, I should clarify. I, I am not exhausted by like this conversation because no. it's, it's approached the right way. And as long as nuance is allowed to enter into the conversation, then I'm good with it. But just like the overall overriding focus and the fact that any post about LeBron James on, on Twitter or Facebook is inundated with comments about Jordan, like that just gets so tired. I can see that, but you also did tell me that you were exhausted of me before we started recording, so I don't know how I'm supposed to interpret this at that point. Um, However you want. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. 
With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Before we get into the mailbag, this is all gut feeling stuff. But so the 2019-20 season is over. The 2020-2021 season is probably not going to begin until uh, 2021 at this point. I think MLK Day is the one that everyone zeroed in on. And that does feel like the right one. But there's been, there was a report from ESPN that like people around the league don't want to give up the Christmas um, Day extravaganza. And then there's also been talk of like, well, they might push it to March because they want fans. If you just had to guess, and I want you, you don't have to get into any of like the, the coronavirus stuff. Would it be more likely that the NBA starts on Christmas or starts in March to you? Easily March. You know, we're already, uh, we have, it's, it's impossible to have this conversation without getting into the coronavirus stuff. And we're already seeing case rates elevate once again. It's probably only going to get worse in the winter. The death um, rate, though. It's fine. It's just to be only, it's, death rate's the only thing that matters. I'm sorry, I told you exhausting conversations. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, it, I think the NBA is quickly going to realize the reality of the situation that fans are not likely to be involved, at least in in large volume or in in safe manners, um, and that's just going to push the timetable back. I still think that we're going to get to a point because I think you have to like, maybe it'll be like in December sometime where they realize like, well, we're not waiting. The two or three months is not going to get us fans in the stands. And that's why I feel like it might actually be more likely. Like maybe it's late November, early December. I would say Christmas is more likely than March to me just because I think they're going to, there's going to come a point where I think they're going to be more concerned about, well, we have to get in as many games or all the games. Um, and because we're not going to have that gate revenue, which accounts for, um, yep. 40% of, of their revenue. So I, I would think Christmas is more likely, but I think MLK Day feels like the, the right one to guess. I don't, we obviously don't know about fans in the stands. I am curious to see though, how they would handle the differing markets where like, because in Florida where there's, as of now we're recording this, just no restrictions on anything. So like, could the magic and the heat, like they're allowed to have fans in the stands, but let's say the Lakers and Clippers wouldn't be. Um, are they going to come up with a blanket rule? For it the is league? what we're seeing in the NFL where different stadiums are having different policies. There are some teams that are continuing to not have fans in the stadiums. There are others that are pushing for fuller capacities. Um, so I, I do think that there is precedent for allowing some variance there. Yeah, there's precedent. I just wonder if that's like, the, is it the route to go? Because are you putting, I do having your well, player, in general, if the NFL does something, you should do the opposite. I do hope what they at least do, because I think you're subject. I feel like I was about to talk over that. That's I would agree with you. I would think like if if not every market can have it's like cleared for some capacity. I know that I don't think the NBA will view it this way, but I would prefer the blanket rule. But they're going to want the revenue, so I'm sure they'll go more the way of the NFL. And I'm not saying having fans contributes to how it would impact the players, but like you're already putting them at more risk once you start traveling and they're not in the bubble anymore. I don't think we could expect them to go back in the bubble. I'm wondering if one way to mitigate it would be like can they have longer like series with one team where the traveling team is like more easily sequestered where it's like get in all three of your matchups or four of your matchups with the Rockets 
at the same time if you're the Lakers or whatever. Um, and that'd be interesting because then it's like, do we get a playoff feel and see like for the adjustments beforehand? Um, just might be something to try. That's just, I think MLK Day though. That would be my, like, do you feel like that's the date that it feels yeah. like it's going to happen? And this is a totally harebrained idea that I literally just thought of while you were talking. But I wonder if it would be possible to have like a number of different bubble locations and have, you know, eight teams go to them. They essentially play like round robin style. So they're getting in their games against each of them all locally. Then you have like a week or two off so players can go see their families and then you go enter a different bubble. And like just if if they can come up with a schedule that allows that, then that might be like the safest way to get in a lot of games. Yeah, I mean that's I don't think that's too harebrained. Uh I just I'd be curious to see like how did, like you're stopping and starting bubbles like does there need to be like a, a quarantining process like after the bubble before I would the think bubble? So, yeah. So that like that's where that gets tough, but that's why I do think that earlier is going to end up being the standard just because in absence of having stadiums full or arenas full, like not even talking about partial capacity, you get to the point where it's like well then we need we need to play all 82 games. And that's why I would just lean and towards if- if we've learned anything from what's happening in the NFL right now with like the Tennessee Titans outbreak, then in all likelihood, you need to plan time in your schedule for makeup games. Right. And that's why the earlier start would be, that's what the whole thing is just uncomfortable with sports. Like I, I get it from a like hardened, like business perspective, like if life is going to go on, but it's like, if you're doing this outside the bubble, which I don't think you can ask the players to do this all the time. I want to make that clear, but like, you're almost admitting like, there's going to be more positive cases in the league now. And like, that's, what's absolutely terrifying. But on a lighter note, we have a mailbag to we go do. through. Um, do. I'm not sure if you have it handy and I'm putting it on the spot here, but there was, we did, I did a solo mailbag that you actually prepped for. Um, and you had a question, I believe that you did research for that you wanted to answer. Um, I don't know if you wrote down the question or if you have the research in front of you, but now would be the time for you to um, tackle that one since we are in a mailbag. Yeah, I do. I can't remember um, which one was covered. Was it the um, the assist to turnover correlation, or was it the the clutch shooting? I did. I covered neither. I did shooting overall in the bubble um, versus the regular season because I thought that was just like a larger sample. But I didn't cover either of them. Yeah, I think the one that was really interesting to me was um, whether there is a a strong correlation. Um, between assist to turnover rate and winning percentage, just like whether the the teams that are better passing teams, and we saw this in particular with like the the Warriors at their peak, where they were just so good at generating assists on every single bucket that they made, but they also had a lot of turnovers. Okay, yeah. Uh, but you know what I found from looking at this, I looked at every team since the start of the 2000, 2001 season. And they're like, really isn't that strong of a correlation. There is a positive one, but the R squared coefficient is only 0.207 overall. There just aren't like, there is not really demonstrable evidence that having an elite assist to turnover ratio pushes you into that elite territory. So there, there are examples where like the 2011, 12 Oklahoma city thunder, they went 47 and 19 with a 1.13 assist to turnover ratio. So that was the 93.1 percentile for wins and the 0.7 percentile for assist to turnover ratio. So like they managed to win through a lot of isolation heavy basketball. Alternatively, like the 2017-18 Dallas Mavericks, they only won 24 games, but they were in the 94th percentile for assist to turnover ratio. And even recently, we've actually seen that correlation continue to decline. 
um, which is likely because we're we're moving away from old school hero ball, but we're moving towards like the off the bounce step back threes, a lot of riskier possessions um, because you're you're trying to go for those three pointers that are so prominent in today's game. So the correlation coefficient over the last five years dropped to 0.197, but during this season it was actually 0.091, which is basically like no correlation whatsoever. Did this did those findings surprise you at all? They did. I would have expected there to be at least more of a relationship between the two. And it's always tough to infer causation from correlation, but it at least seems likely that teams that are better at passing and better at avoiding turnovers would be better at winning games. But as we move increasingly into this modern style, that's just like not really what we're seeing. Uh, I feel like that surprises me as well too, but I guess that makes sense when you're looking at how the game has been trending. Yeah. Um, so did you want to go, do you want me to take us through the mailbag or you said you went let's, like, if super you could, recent. that would be awesome. Just since I think you have the questions in front of you. Awesome. All right. So let's start with a fun one first, since we covered some heavy handed stuff to begin. This is from Jacob Bourne, friend of the pod and friend in real life and former coworker, best and worst tattoos in the NBA. Is this one of the questions that you did research on? I prepared for all of them. So yes. All right. So do I'll you want me to do first. my best or my worst first? Uh, which wherever you want to start. Let's start with the worst. And I want to preface this by saying that, you know, tattoos are an individual decision. And I'm sure that each one that an NBA player has has meaning and that they're ultimately a fan of. So it's hard to like talk down on them because even if they're not appealing to us, I'm sure that they're appealing to the players. Now, that said, that important caveat out of the way, I hate Mike Scott's emoji tattoos. I kind of love them, but I don't I don't care for them. So those and if I can go like a little bit into the retired player spectrum, Richard Jefferson has like the cartoonish RJ initials. Um, I I don't know where they are. I can't remember that. But they look like they were drawn by a middle schooler. And I was just never a fan of those. So those are my those are my two at the bottom. But again, like you, you just said that you like the emoji tattoos and it's all when we talk about art, which is what tattoos are like, it's a matter of personal preference. Yeah. So, and look, I don't want to criticize that there's actual meaning behind any of these. Like, I don't want to be criticizing that. Um, and the two of the worst, two of the worst ones that st- stood out to me. So is Abdul Nader has a no love tattoo with like this weird, like, just like, a, it's like an emoji heart, but not really biting on a rose. Um, chewing through a like coming through a star i don't know what it means but it just doesn't is not viscerally appealing to me uh the other one that stands out i don't know and it's probably because of what it is but kai bowman has like one of the least attractive like tattoos i've ever seen it's like a it looks like there's a jason mask on there with um some dice maybe there's stars there there's definitely hearts I'm trying to look at it now. There's some sort of creature. It looks like maybe it's, it's Freddy and Jason. So that must be what it was. It looked like um, Groot, but like zombie Groot is what I thought it was at first. Like I couldn't tell it was Jason. Um, and like, I'm just not, I don't know. I'm just not about it. And like, there's not, I'm a big fan of shading. It looks like there's cards in there as well. So if you're going to get anything resembling like a, it's basically up his whole calf, like get some shading in there to, to connect them. The other, the other one, like it's not an active player, but Darren Williams's old shoulder tattoo, the Panther, was awful because it didn't look like a Panther on broadcast. It kind of looked like like this melting puddle of something, and it was just, it was not great. That's another one that stands out to me historically. I can't. One I'm looking up right now because I can't remember whether I loved or hated it, but I, but I knew it was considered iconic in one fashion or another. Is like 
Andre Karolinko had that. It was like a World of Warcraft tattoo. Yep, yep. I'm looking at it right now. Um, I don't think it falls under the worst or the best for me. It was like his entire back, though. Uh, you just can't really like tell. Like, I guess if you're a WoW fan, um, you can, but the detail on it is like, I don't know, it seems a little fuzzy. Maybe that's just the, the picture. Uh, what were your best tattoos, though? They were both. So my top two are actually both on the New Orleans Pelicans. I love how J.J. Reddick's sleeve looks with the angel and the lion. I just, it really works. I've always liked looking at that one since he got it, what was it, like two or three years ago now? And I think the best one is Lonzo Ball's sleeve, though. The one that has Rosa Parks, Jackie Robinson, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, Barack Obama, and Martin Luther King Jr. on it. It is it is so like exquisitely detailed. There's obviously a lot of meaning to having those prominent black figures throughout American history. Um, it, it looks great. The meaning is there. It checks all the boxes for me. Yeah, that was – so his was on – um, he, his is my absolute favorite too. And look, the detail on the, the portraits one as someone who's so good. Yeah. As someone who's a tattoo enthusiast, like the portraits are hit or miss, like they can come out terribly. That was just fantastic artwork. And like, it's so detailed and so huge that I, you almost forget that they're on the same arm. Uh, so like, that's just incredible. So he was uh, my pick for absolute favorite. And so, you know, regardless of, I like JJ Reddick's too. Um, Austin Rivers though has a really nice sleeve where it's uh, there's like some religion at the top of it near his shoulder blade. Um, there's like a huge rose I think with prayer hands as he gets lower to the arm, but it can be really hard with just black and white tattoos where there's not a lot of color for the detail to shine through when there's a lot going on. Like even on Lonzo Balls, there's like there, there's not like a ton of shading in the actual faces, so like it's easier to distinguish. But his Austin Rivers tattoo is busy, but it's gorgeous. Um, so I would recommend that uh, people look at his. The, so that's a tattoo that that I enjoyed. Probably my second favorite in the league right now, I believe. I've always really liked Damian Lillard's too on his shoulder. Like I, I'm not always a huge fan of just like the written word tattoos, but the way that he has it all lined up, like it looks out of a book. It just looks good. The two things um, I didn't realize like how many NBA players had like lions tattooed on them to some degree was just something. And then I like. Um, it's not like a, a super like incredible tattoo, but I like that Damian Lillard has like the the just microphone tattooed on him. Like, I and he has the, the like the heartbeat slash rhythm beat too on on the back of his neck. I love the the heartbeat. The rhythm beat is awesome. I lo- I love yeah. that concept. Next question comes from Tortuga. Should Phoenix be looking for a point guard of the future or looking at Booker as a possible solution by letting him run point as more of a combo guard? We've talked about Phoenix as a potential like dark horse candidate to trade for Chris Paul in the past. And if you can make that kind of upgrade, sure, I'm all for it. But honestly, like I'm not too sold on them needing to make any major changes to be a legitimate second round postseason contender moving forward. Devin Booker is that good. He has experience working at both on ball and off ball guard positions and is able to blend those positions together. Now, Ricky Rubio is still only 29 years old, at least for a few more days as we're recording this. He's under contract through the 2021-2022 season, and he finished this past year at a really high level. Uh, I don't know that point guard really needs to be a priority for this Phoenix team. If you can make an upgrade without sacrificing your future, sure, go for it. But Rubio and Booker works as as we've learned more and more in this past year. Yeah, look, like Booker's just the de facto point guard for so many possessions. Either he only logged fifty official possessions as the point guard this year. Um, I would I would be all for seeing more of those types of 
of lineups, but I'd fall with you there. They do need like another shot creator because I don't know that you can trust campaign to play at the level he did. And then obviously Rubio, while he's a wizard, like he's just not a threat to score off the dribble like someone else is. And so if that upgrade comes in the form of a point guard, but if it comes in the form of a wing or, or four, and I'm probably not with you. I think they need, they're like one piece away from being that maybe first round playoff team, even for me. Uh, and I think that they could focus on, again, that other shot creator or like, can you upgrade the four position measurably? Uh, I think Aaron Gordon, just because of the type of shots that um, Booker can create, might be an interesting fit. But with Rubio and Aiden, maybe the spacing gets kind of tight. Jeremy Grant's been a popular mention among, like for a free agent, among all of their uh, fans. Uh, Paul but- Millsap. Paul Millsap would be super interesting there. Uh, so I, I, if they can make an, an upgrade there, but they do feel one substantial piece away. I don't think that you need to make that substantial piece a point guard. What, though, so let's let's say it's not Chris Paul. Would you do it for Fred Van Fleet? Like if they're going to clear some cap to, and it, they don't have to do too much, but it would there would be an opportunity cost. I think at least two of Kaminsky, Sarich, and Baines would have to go for them to. I don't think I would. I don't think I would. I don't. I don't know that that Van Vliet is a, a a tangible upgrade over Ricky Rubio right now, especially given what the Suns need. You have Booker to shoot. Van Vliet, as pesky as he is on defense, and as as comfortable as he is playing off the ball because of his time alongside Kyle Lowry, I think Rubio does more of what you need on this Phoenix team. So I, that's that's probably like on the cusp where I wouldn't hate it if that's a play that they made, but I don't know that I would prioritize that over. And I agree with you here the the front court acquisitions. I like Fred Van Fleet better for this team than Ricky Rubio. I would not go after Fred Van Fleet if Ricky Rubio is still on the team, though. Just like now you're allocating so many resources to the backcourt when you look at Rubio, Booker, and then Fred Van Fleet. And so that's why I wouldn't do it. I, the more, the bigger play for me would be like, can you dangle Kelly Oubre Jr.'s deal? And then uh, they have the number 10 pick, right? I don't have the draft order in front of me. So can you dangle like that expiring contract plus a pick or, or something else? And what can you get in return? It is the number two pick. So that's the, that's the route if, if I were them that, that I would go. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Uh, next question comes from Chloe. Chloe, what former NBA player playing overseas now deserves a spot on a current NBA roster? All right, I have three and a half names and a soapbox to stand on. Okay, how do you have three and a half names? I'm very interested to hear this. Because answer. one of them has played in NBA preseason games, but has not actually played in the NBA. Okay. So I'm like only partially counting him. So the first name is Jan Vesely, who flamed out with the Washington Wizards as a high draft pick, who was supposed to be like the European Blake Griffin and, and was not. But he has developed so much more touch on his in-between game. He's improved his free throw shooting and his three-point shooting overseas. And he's really become a EuroLeague superstar. If he wanted to come back and play, he 100% could and would be a contributor. Second name is Nick Calathes, who last played with the Memphis Grizzlies in 2015. He's become a much better shooter and an absolute top-of-the-line passer. 
I would love to see him get another cho- chance. Third name is Nikola Mirotic, who really doesn't need much of an explanation because he left the NBA voluntarily to go make a lot more money playing in Spain. And the fourth answer, which is the half one, is Facundo Campazzo, who is just an absolutely magical passer from Argentina, a really, really good defender. He's 29 years old. If he came to the NBA right now, I think he would be a top half starting point guard. The soapbox is that the soapbox is that I think that the NBA as a whole needs to get a lot better at giving these kind of players more opportunities. We see it a lot with coaches, but we also see it with players where there's such a tendency to advocate for the retreads and the known veteran options, even if there isn't upside there. And I would so much rather see teams give roster spots to these European stars who weren't stars in the NBA in the past because there's so much more upside there. And we saw it this season with like Brad Wanamaker, who played all over Europe um, and then debuted in the NBA during his age 29 rookie season last year. And this year he was a legitimate rotation player for the Boston Celtics during the playoffs. That isn't something you're just going to unearth from a veteran who's been around the block in the NBA because the upside isn't there. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see more teams take shots on someone like Calathes, who was nothing special with the Grizzlies half a decade ago, but has developed his game so much and could offer a lot more than just that 35-year-old who's just hanging on for one more contract. That's a fair point. Those are all interesting names. Miritich is, I feel like, an obvious one. The two for me would be former NBA players. I still feel like Jeremy Lin could help out a team if he's healthy. And then Shane Larkin, I feel like, kind of just belongs in the NBA. And he shot over 50% um, from three in the Turkish league this year. So, And his teammates actually said that he was becoming like the Turkish Michael Jordan at some point. <laughs> I did not see that. So Yeah, they were, like, they were saying like we're making him into the Michael Jordan over here just by giving him all the shots and making him a star. Oh, remember the NBA. It's time. He could be Michael Jordan for a team here too. Um, he obviously cannot. Uh, this next question comes from Kyle K. Who is the best player you think the Lakers could get for their $10 million mid-level exception? What range do you expect Malachi Flynn to go uh, to be drafted in? This is much more, the first part is much more Dan territory than Adam territory. So my brief answer is that I wouldn't be surprised if like the market gets especially weird for them to try to go after someone, some like really good veteran, like a Goran Dragic or a Joe Harris or even a Danilo Gallinari, but that's kind of unlikely. So I'm viewing like Serge Ibaka and Jordan Clarkson as the more realistic targets. As for Malachi Flynn, fantastic pick and roll player, both as a scorer and a passer, but teams don't really like undersized guards. He's 6'1 without elite athleticism and below average wingspans, and his wingspan is only 6'3. I'd be surprised if he's off the board before the second half of the second round, but I could see a team falling in love with his shooting and taking him in like the late 30s. Uh, On the latter, the bare minimum that I know about him, I would agree with you on Flynn. For the Lakers, I think you you were kind of spot on. Uh, Gallinari thanked them after they won the title. Uh, so maybe he would be, and he's like flat out just said that he wants to win now. Every player says that, but it's like he's kind of the player where it's like, because he said it, I feel like he's not a star. So like, does it actually mean more because he's not a superstar saying this? And maybe if the market's so squeezed, he just figures that if he signs a one-year deal there um, and then decides that, or a one-and-one, one, whatever you want to call it, or even two, and then decides that, you know, he'll make up money with early bird rights, wink-wink, in two years. Um, that's something he could do. Uh, I am interested to see where the mid-level falls. It's going to be I th- between somewhere between 9 and $9.7 million would be my guess. Dragic might get into their range now following his injury, but I still think that the Heat might maybe tilt towards paying overpaying him for 
for one year. I don't know that any of the teams with cap space would really want him, though. There's only four that are guaranteed to have it, five if you include Miami among them. But if they carry holes for Crowder and Dragic, you remove them from the equation. Another name I'll just throw out there so to be a little bit different uh, would be Evan Fournier. Might be an interesting name for them. Maybe he's too backcourty and they want someone who's going to be more, um, can play more of the three. But like when LeBron and AD are basically positionless it re- and how big they play, perhaps it doesn't matter. Uh, he has a $17 million player option. Maybe he looks at it where it's, if I can get a four-year mid-level deal and it's that's for almost $40 million or around $40 million, whatever that net sum is, that's worth it because it will take... Um, two seasons for him to recoup all of that money on a mid-level deal. Uh, but if if you're getting into the three-year range, then it's kind of like, well, like let's just like three years and like 33 or whatever, 30, like whatever it ends up being, like is that worth it to him? I, I honestly don't know. But if you're willing to go for that fourth year, perhaps it really does make a difference. And the last thing I'll mention with them, and this is maybe with specific regards to Gallinari, sign and trade possibilities are going to be on the table for them. Depending on who picks up their player options, when you look at, they're not getting rid of KCP, but JaVal McGee, Rondo, um, they have Quinn Cook's non-guaranteed salary on the books. Like, they can get, like, build some, it would have to be, like, three-for-ones and four-for-ones. Um, Avery Bradley has the $5 million player option. They can step ladder their way to, like, a pretty more expensive player. And so if OKC is willing to, maybe they just want the number 27 pick, and you can pay Gallinari market value, that's something that they could look at. Maybe even Orlando with Fournier. We'll look at doing something like that. I don't know how much you pay him, and I, I think Gallo helps your team a lot more than he would, but I think those are scenarios that will be open to them because then I think they would still have enough room um, below the hard cap where you're, you're still going to be able to use your mid-level exception then too. And so if you're completing a signing and trade and then still being able to use your MLE, that ends up being a huge deal for them, which is what, you know, I think we spoke about this briefly when we were talking about the Lakers, not this podcast, but another one. They just have an avenue for improvement that LeBron's teams normally don't have. Maybe when he first comes like that off season, because you have cap space to get him, they have more flexibility. But as you move on, normally you're dealing with aging role players on these longer contracts and perhaps that's where they end up at, but they're not there yet. You stole my thunder here. Cause I was going to follow all that up by saying, and this in a nutshell is why we've, we've both said that even as the Lakers are coming off a title, it feels like the worst team they're going to have for a few years which is just absolutely my melting. And so they're a team that'll spend too. We don't know really anything about this market, but like they're not going to shy away from spending. Next question from Carrigan. How do the Jazz get a power forward this offseason? Sign one. Well, so they, on. can either, they can either sign one, they can trade for one, or they can draft one. Uh, do they even have any picks in this year's draft, though? They do not yeah, have they, a, they do have, they they have, have 23. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the three obvious names here are Paul Millsap, Derek Favors, and Aaron Baines. Aaron Baines is a power forward. He can be, I suppose. Now, I mean, they've played big in the past. They could deviate more towards that um, going forward. He can play the four a little bit now that he can shoot. But he, I don't consider – I mean, is Derek Favors a four anymore? Like, I would No, I wouldn't. Uh, of the names that you listed, only Paul Millsap is the one that I would agree <laughs> with him. So the challenge for them to me is, one – if we assume that the cap is going to stay lateral at this point, which it feels like the popular assumption, they're in this weird spot where like they come, they're not in the tax if they gave Jordan Clark- Clarkson the same money he was making right now, $13.4 million. But I have them with their first round pick and guaranteeing all of their non-guarantees, which I think, unless they're out on Morgan or, or Tucker, I think they're going to end up doing. They're inside $4 million then 
of the tax. And so, yes, that's far enough below the apron that you could use your non-taxpayers mid-level. However, are they going to be willing to go into the tax at all? My guess would be no. And so the obstacle to them getting a power forward is, are they going to keep Jordan Clarkson? And if they do, I think that ends up, unless it's via trade or you're cutting salary elsewhere, like maybe you could dump Ed Davis's deal off of someone to give yourself more breathing room. What are you going to be able to get without going into the tax? And that's like the names there are just not going to be like as an impressive for them. And look, the, the, I don't want to get like too far into positions, but like the, the wing forward, like combo forward market is not great. And they're not going to get the Marcus Morris. They're not going to get the, the Jay Crowder. I'd be, I wonder if Paul Millsap would, wouldn't consider them. Like that's fairly interesting. Uh, Mo Harkless is someone they could afford. Would he want to go there? And does he give you enough three point shooting, but he gives you more defensive optionality than anyone else really uh, that you have on, on those spots right now. So like then, uh, you know, he's going to defend bigger and smaller, has more range than Ingles, I would say, and certainly more than um, Bojan Bogdanovic. Uh, but like, it's that type of name. And like, even as I'm just kind of looking at the the list, like does Rondé Hollis Not Jefferson. Great. Yeah. Like RHJ, the offensive limitations, you can't play him with Gobert. Then uh, if Tony Snell opts out and you can consider him a four, like maybe that would be interesting, but I don't think he's going to, opt out so you can sign one but it might be more realistic for them to trade for one just because if you're willing to dangle number 23 uh after you like after you draft him alongside uh ed davis's salary which is five million like what what type of a player does that get you i don't necessarily know off the top of my head is assuming the knicks decline um bobby portis's team option is that someone you would consider um are you comfortable enough with your defense to have him on the floor i don't know if you necessarily can be uh, there, I, I would say the most likely route for them is to sign one. I just don't know what kind of equity they're going to be working with. It could end up being less than than the full mid level, and that's where it becomes a problem to get anyone who's actually impactful. Nothing to add there. I think you covered it all there, but and, ultimately the answer to that question is they can sign, trade, or draft one. Yeah, there you go. This one is from Uno Mas. We know this free agent class is not as hot, but what could be the most interesting moves contending teams in the East can make? I mean, I don't know if if people listening to a podcast can see me shrugging here, but like that's a really hard question because we don't know opt-out decisions. We don't know what the cap is going to be like, and there are such limited options that nothing like really feels that interesting for the contending teams. Like we could see like Davis Bertans or Joe Harris going to join a different contender. We could see the heat give a one year balloon deal to basically anyone. The Raptors are interesting just because with Serge Ibaka, who just scrubbed all mentions of the Raptors from his social media this morning, Fred Van Vliet um, and who am I forgetting? And, and, um, I'm blanking on their other free agents, but the Raptors have a number of notable free agents. Soul. Did you name him? I did not. That's who I was forgetting. Um, just kind of like they forgot about him in the playoffs. But anyway, um, you know, the Raptors can go in so many different directions that I think whatever they do is interesting. But again, like this is just a tricky question because there are so many unknowns while we're already working with a very lackluster free agent class. Yeah, and look, for a lot of these teams, I would say the most damage that they could do if they're looking to be aggressive would be via trade for the Bucks specifically. Um, knowing what it might cost to retain Wesley Matthews, who I feel like is must keep for them. Like the, the the impact move that you could make is go after uh, Chris Paul. Like j- just do it. Uh, I know you're going to have to pay the tax then. I don't know how realistic that is for them. 
Uh, Toronto is weird. I'd be reticent to say anything, but what they could do is run it back and then look and then use their mid-level exception. That's just where I'm at because they have so many free agents, as you mentioned, that if they lose two of them, like, are they still a contender or how aggressive are they going to be? How much do they want to preserve cap space for 2021? So I don't really know what they could do, like looking at specific players, but I would need to see, like, keep two of Van Fleet, Gasol and Ibaka. And for, there's rumors that Gasol might already be gone. And like you said, with Ibaka. So I think if you keep Van Fleet, it positions you to still sort of run it back. So then you use your mid-level exception on, like, can we sign um, maybe a combo big? I think Chris Boucher, particularly if, you know, um, both Gasol and Ibaka are gone. Uh, he becomes really important to them, but there are, there are centers to spare in this market, I guess would be the best way to put it bigs to spare. And so with your mid level, I wouldn't use, I wouldn't want to use all of it on a center, but like, maybe you can get some interesting names there. That's for the, but again, it's just, they have so many different scenarios. I don't want to tie them to uh, specific names. These other teams, so uh, let's say Boston, Miami, Philly, and Brooklyn, I'll loop into there. For Brooklyn, like they need to address the four spot, and because Karis LeVert is so good, I don't know if they want to do that via trade, uh, but can you, like, what will Paul Millsap play for them for the taxpayers' mid-level exception, which is what they'll be working with? Like, that would be a huge get for them. Yeah, there's such limited options outside the trade market that it's a it's a tough one. Right. Um, If Jermichael Green opts out, he'd be a name I'd circle for them, too. Um, and that's like this, that also kind of proves my point here that like, we're talking about Jamichael green as a most interesting move that a contender in the East can make right now. Yeah. Um, for Philadelphia, I think it has to happen via trade. I don't know what you're going to get with your mini MLE because you need a, a shot, like a a ball handling shooter. And like, that's just not something you're normally going to get even in this market for the mini MLE and like re-signing Alec Burks would be like a huge deal for them. And then looking at outside players, maybe a Langston Galloway or a Bryn Forbes, I feel like could really help them. Um, who am I leaving? Oh, Boston. Uh, so Miami. Look, they could have a ton of cap space. Like they can get to thirty plus million in room essentially if they if they renounce Crowder and Dragic. I just don't know that the market warrants them doing that. The priority should be, I think, signing both of them to one year deals. Maybe you're a little bit more hesitant to do that with Dragic following his his injury. Um, at the at the same time, I just don't like the who else are you getting? Like, unless you want to throw all your eggs in the Van Fleet basket, I actually think he'd be an interesting fit there. Um, but then you have to worry about, well, what does that done to do to our 2021 room? It'd be the same if you decide to go after Gallo. But those are names that they could technically look at, or they could trade as well. It's just like in any deal, their most appealing aspect, aside from maybe having cap space to complete a lopsided deal, they have Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson, who just feel like they shouldn't be moved at this point, unless you're getting Giannis, which you're not. And um, maybe even Beal, which doesn't seem like he'll be moved. You're not giving up one of those guys for Victor Oladipo, I don't think. Um, and so with the Heat, I would say it's probably run it back, or again, you could go with a Gallinari for Ed Van Fleet route to look at it. And then Boston's the team I didn't mention. They have the mini MLE, and assuming they're willing to spend it, like I think, I think you could talk yourself into saying they don't need anything, but they could use a little bit of everything. Like, do you need another backup playmaker? Is Brad Wanamaker going to leave in restricted free agency? Do you think that they need another big? Tice was good. Maybe you like Robert Williams. You have Grant Williams. Um, but, you know, can you move Ennis Canner, be someone who could play more than like eight or nine minutes in a playoff game for you? So would you use your mini Emily on a big? And then it's like, yeah, you have wings when you're looking at Jalen Brown, Tatum, and Hayward, but the drop-off there is just so steep afterwards, even if you want to consider Marcus Moore as a wing. What type of player is available for that number? I think you're going to get the most, given how few point guards there are, at the center position is where it would kind of go the longest way. Like, Could you get even a restricted free agent like Chris Boucher with the mini MLE, who spaces the floor a little bit, is a, is a shot-blocking fiend, 
uh, because Toronto just doesn't want to pay him since they're conserving cap space for 2021, which Boston is not doing. Um, other names on the center market, like I don't like I don't know how appealing they are to Boston, which tends to like pick and pop bigs, but like maybe a Kyle O'Quinn there, like and that's sort of a lower tier name. The final thing I'll mention though, if someone wants to get weird here, is that some of these teams could theoretically try to pursue a Brandon Ingram sign-in trade. I've warmed up to this as a possibility the more and more I've considered how wild free agency is going to be. I don't know that New Orleans is going to want to commit a max to him, knowing that you have Lonzo Ball being extension eligible. Drew Holiday is a free agent in 2021. Look at how poorly they kind of fared in the bubble. Um, the center position is kind of in flux long-term. You still need to get a better feel for what Zion Williamson is going to be, at least on defense and even with offense. And so as talented as they are, they might be further away than we're actually thinking, or they're at least not going to want to make the financial commitment to a team that isn't a sure thing. And that might open the door for some Brandon Ingram sign and trade scenarios. And so if you're, you know, he'd be fantastic in Milwaukee, but I don't know how you get him just because they don't have the assets. Uh, would you consider that if you're Toronto? I don't know. If you're Miami, I absolutely consider that if, even if you have to end up punting on, 2021 cap space now you're getting to the point well what are you giving up for him you have cap space already so maybe it wouldn't have to be as much um you have an Iguodala's contract to use as a matching tool if you're going with actual money there but are you giving up hero or duncan robinson for ingram i would probably say yes i'm not gonna lie um duncan robinson definitely hero looking at his higher upside might be a breaking point for me but uh, i would consider it but those those teams could look at doing something like that. If they want to get bold, you can look at trades. Victor Oladipo will be out there. Or try and go the sign-and-trade route, like Gallinari. I think that'll be an option for him. But Brandon Ingram is one that I would just keep an eye on. I feel like that situation could materialize in a different way than we initially expected. How was that for a long answer? That was a fantastic answer. I, I think that we're going to see a lot more big trades than big free agent signings this summer. But I think that if Giannis unexpectedly signs a Supermax extension this summer then all sorts of possibilities become available because all of a sudden Miami and other teams are no longer going to be quite as inclined to be prioritizing that long-term cap space and then you get some interesting scenarios like the Brandon Ingram one and look if I'm Giannis I'm waiting to sign until after free agency is like let the dust settle let the teams like have to be in flux who are planning for you and then make that decision but you're right if he does make an early decision to do that all hell could break loose, like in free agency, on the trade market, sign and trades, all that. We are coming to, we're, we're wrapping up here. This next question is definitely a question for you. Comes from RX Mart. Jamal Murray is a top X player going into next season. So we're in the middle of unveiling all the crystal basketball rankings, which are sort of a snapshot of this moment in time following the 2019-20 season. And Jamal Murray even though he was nearly a consensus grade, was one of the tougher players to evaluate just because what we saw in the regular season was so much different from what we saw in the playoffs. And we're still not entirely sure how sustainable that performance in the bubble and during the postseason actually was. We know that he's not going to continue to hit roughly 90% of his pull-up threes. We know he's probably not going to have a 50-point game every other outing. But it really did feel like this was a legitimate superstar, fringe superstar emergence. Um, so right now, I would be comfortable calling him a top 30 lock going into next season. I don't know how much higher than that I'm willing to go. Um, I don't want to reveal his crystal basketball placement quite yet since we're still going team by team and haven't gotten to the Nuggets. I will say he is in that range. Um, I, I don't think that you can feel 
confident saying that he's in the top 20 discussion right now until we've seen this level of play over a larger sample. But it is important that we saw the best basketball of his career in those high stakes moments in a way that felt like more than just a hot streak. I'm with you. I'm wondering if he's also just one of those players that is going to be better and more important in the playoffs than the regular season. He could be just because they they can run the offense entirely through Jokic during the regular season. And then when you do need to have more from scratch creation in the half court setting, like that's what he can do. So I, I could see him like kind of seeming to regress a little bit during the regular season as he's not full pedal to the metal on the offensive end and working on individual parts of his game. And that was the biggest thing. It wasn't just that he was a confident and accurate shooter. It was that his handle felt tighter. He felt more in control running pick and roll sets. It was, you know, we, we see really good teams sacrifice some wins during the regular season so that they can experiment with things and improve their ceiling for the all-important playoff series. And it does feel like he could be one of those players given the construction of this Nuggets roster. So do you have like a ballpark range for him, would you say? Yeah, I think top 30. Yeah, top 30 would be where I'm comfortable putting him now, but I think there's potential for that number to become smaller. I think top 25 for me might be his ceiling. I'd probably top 30 between, this is a wide range for him, but I think he's that type of player. Like in the Donovan Mitchell vein, where I think you would top 35 to top 25. And if things, if he plays like he did, if that's the, the version of Jamal Murray, I'm not even saying the efficiency and the actual numbers, but if bubble Jamal Murray, playoff Jamal Murray just translates to regular season Jamal Murray, like you can bump that up to top 20. Maybe like there, there'd be a chance, yeah, like you could, you could enter that Bradley Beal territory. I mean, he was a top 10 player in the playoffs. Just absolutely fantastic. Two more questions left. DCP, how many teams will be shooting 40 to 53 pointers next season? There were two this year, Houston and Dallas. Right. So those are the obvious two to start with. Dallas, I think, is a lock to continue to be there, just given the way that they play and the personnel they have at their disposal. So there's one. I don't know about Houston, just because they they don't really have an escape from this roster without completely ripping it to shreds and making like a James Harden or Russell Westbrook trade. But I still, and we don't know who their coach is going to be either. You know, whoever it is isn't going to have those three pointers propagate throughout the system quite like Mike D'Antoni did. But just because James Harden is there and the roster should be similarly constructed, I feel comfortable including those. I think there are three teams that could join them in that category. The Timberwolves, I want to basically call a lock to do that with Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell leading the offense. The Brooklyn so, Nets. I was going to say, not even that. They would be a pick for me too, but like Gerson Rosas being there too, coming from Houston, yep. like that, I feel like yep. that's an actual lock. They'll be there. The Brooklyn Nets, I think, could be right on the cusp just because you have Kevin Durant, you have Kyrie Irving, you have Karis LeVert, like there's there's going to be a ton of three-point shooting on that roster. And the Golden State Warriors could get there, just knowing that they're going to have Steph Curry and Klay Thompson back, that they're still going to be running so much of the offense through them that Andrew Wiggins, if he's still on the roster, is at least somewhat improving as a three-point shooter. They weren't at that 40 to 50 threshold at their peak, but the offense, the offense throughout the NBA has continued to trend more and more towards higher three-point volume that I could see them getting there. Like for all we know, Steph Curry could very well take 15 threes a game because he has a perpetual green light. So those are the ones that I'm comfortable at least putting in the conversation, but 40 to 50 threes per game, even in 2020 is a ton. Yeah, I mean, look, there were only two teams. It was still Dallas and Houston that averaged above 40 per 100 possessions. And so 
Um, I have Dallas and Houston being there again, Minnesota as well. Uh, you mentioned all the reasons why I wouldn't put the nets there just because Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and even Levert like to operate inside the arc so much, uh, that they could be lower. A lot of this has to do with pace of play. I could maybe see the Warriors getting there, but it also kind of feels like they're a buddy heel trade away from getting there. Like they would need like someone else with that type of volume because outside of clay and Curry, they don't have a volume three point shooter right now. Um, this is like not an actual pick, but if Kenny Atkinson gets a job before next season, whatever team that he's on, I feel like will enter that combo. You could say the same for Mike D'Antoni, but I do feel like he's his style is a little bit more adaptable now. Where if he like wound up in Indy, uh, like a lot of people think that he might, um, or he might be an assistant with Brooklyn. Uh, I don't know that his team would necessarily do that. So I'm just going to say four. I'm going to say Minnesota, Dallas, Houston. And then wherever Kenny Atkinson lands up, if, if, if he ends up there, or there'll be like a dark horse where it's like, yeah, you know what, Golden State will get there. Like maybe they make a trade or they they lean into three-point volume. Um, I could even see maybe being Toronto get there at some point, especially if they have a talent deficit, if they lose like a Van Fleet or if they lose a Baca and Gasol. Uh, I'm just going to say four. That's the number that I'll settle on. I think my answer is three, but there are possibilities for more. I'm going to bank on there getting to a fourth, but they'll definitely be three, I feel like, right? Yeah, it seems like there are th- those three locks. Well, we have a 53-point attempt per game team. No. It would have to Houston be Houston. was the only possibility, and they're not going to do that. I won't say definitely that they won't. Like, Daryl Morey's still there, but I would I would say at least not this season. Like, if, if they're going to go up incrementally, you'd think that that's like two seasons away. They're, if they still have Westbrook on the roster especially, because they were at their best when he was avoiding threes. And if you don't have both backcourt members shooting a lot, like, you're not going to get there. Last question comes from a longtime listener who has told me how to pronounce his name in the past. I hope I do not butcher it now, um, but this comes from uh, Miroslav Shuk, and I hope that I did not butcher that terribly. He asks, how many current players are on the NBA's top 100 all-time list? Yeah, so this is a tough one just because everyone has different definitions of what we're ranking. Are we looking at peak level reached over one season, over five seasons longer? Are we looking at the sum of your contributions throughout a career? So just kind of taking everything into account, like when we're talking about the top 100, we're kind of in like Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, Walt Bellamy, Chris Webber territory, which is pretty lofty already. Now that said, I have 13 names that I consider pretty much locks for the top 100. And I'm curious if you disagree with any of these or if there are any that you should we should add to it. I also have a list of 10 that I think you can argue belong. So are you arguing it as they're currently there already or yes. they're dub- – okay. They're, they're current, like I don't want to talk about Luka Doncic in okay. this conversation right. because he is in no way in like the top 100. No Frank okay. Milikina. Like, yeah, I got it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. We, we can't talk about Monte Morris here. Right. Um, so the 13 locks, LeBron James, Stephen Curry – Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, James Harden, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, Damian Lillard, Carmelo Anthony, Dwight Howard, and Pau Gasol. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with any of those names. I'm trying to think of if you left anyone off, and I can't. So my my ten, like you did, can you, make na- you didn't have. Cases. Oh, okay, go ahead. All right, so name those. I'm curious if who you're going to say is going to be on this. So my ten, you can make the cases: Clay Thompson, Kyrie Irving, Paul George. Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge, Nikolai Jokic, Kevin Love, Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry, and Al Horford. I feel like you could make a case for either one of those, but Al Horford might get the boot for me. 
Uh, I feel like his peak was it was like sustained, but it just wasn't like flashy enough. Um, I think he and Clay Thompson are the weakest of those ten. Yeah, I'm like a I'm I want to say we should remove Kyle Lowry because I'm so pro Kyle Lowry, but like that just doesn't seem like a hot take that he could make it there for me. I don't have any major disagreements with you. I, I was curious to see whether you're going to mention Jokic. Did you mention Embiid in that group? No, he has not done enough for me yet. Like the top. I mean, again, like we're talking about like Chris Webber ish range. And yeah, and right, you're saying currently. Yeah, if we were going to say currently, like I'm probably, I don't even know if I could put Clay on there. Definitely not Horford. Jokic is so close. I don't think close. you can put Kyrie in there. I'm not sure you can and put if, Jokic in there. And yet. I was just saying, if you can't put Kyrie, who's hit one of the most important shots in NBA history, like I don't think you could put Jokic yet. So I, all well, those like Kevin Love and Aldridge, I think, are the two where I'm like, yeah, they're probably in there. Definitely Kevin Love. Aldridge, I go, yeah, Aldridge's peak was so good. That's a tough Blake one. Blake Griffin is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I haven't. So the last time I did a top 100 rankings was I'm looking at the article date now. It was April 2015. So like a lot has happened since then. <laughs> um, and I, it's it's a really difficult one to answer without sitting down and like actually coming up with the top 100, which I don't think is a a project that should be taken lightly. It's one of those where, like, when I did my top 100 in 2015, I put hundreds of hours into this thing. Um, it's it, it's tough just to answer it out of a mailbag, which is why I wanted to say, like, here are the locks, here are the guys who I think are, you know, in that 90 to 150 range. Just do it by net rating swing and call it a day. That is the final question we have, though. I hope everyone enjoyed the, the mailbag. Um, if you have not already, please, please, pretty please, with sugar on top, subscribe to this podcast, download every episode wherever you are consuming your podcast. Whether or not you're using Apple, though, that's still the best way to help us. Um, so please head over to Apple, iTunes, search Hardwood Knox, throw us a five-star rating, write a review. It can include criticism. We're here for it. We will read it. Uh, but that that is one of the best ways to help us. Also, follow us on social media, at Hardwood Knox on Twitter. We have a YouTube channel. We'll eventually maybe do more with it, but right now we're posting our episodes there. Subscribers help. YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Subscribe. Um, until next time, though, we leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, the top 100 player of all time, guarantee he's going to get in there, Malik Beasley. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.